James chapter 1. And while I am teaching from one verse this morning, I, like you, have suffered through sermons on one or two words. I am not going to do that repeatedly. <laughs> but we do have one verse this morning that's so important to set the context of the book that I have decided to use a little bit of a microscope as we look at that this morning. And so we're calling this a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It actually comes from the text itself. Look at the screen with me as I read. And this is actually the Holman Christian Standard Version uh, for reasons that you will understand as the message goes on. So James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken. You've spoken clearly. And we as human beings, and as human beings who have been redeemed by your incredible mercies, we need to pay close attention to what you say. Father, would you anoint our hearts and our ears this morning as you anoint my mouth to teach your word. Thank you for all that you're doing in every heart in this room. And we pray that that would be accentuated by the realities that we understand this morning together. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The year, if you could put your sandals on and go back with me into the first century, the year is approximately 44 to 48 A.D. James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. He has risen to prominence about the same time that two church leaders have been martyred. Stephen was killed at the hands of an angry religious mob. James, a different James, was put to death by Herod, Herod's sword. As this letter is penned, Saul has been recently converted. But he is not yet strong enough in his faith. He's actually being tutored and discipled by a young man in the first century named Barnabas. He's not mature enough to lead yet, and he hasn't gone on any missionary journeys. He himself is learning. At the time James writes, there are no known Gentile churches in the world. There are Gentile churches that came from the day of Pentecost, but no one in Jerusalem knows about them yet. And James is the first New Testament writer to take pen in hand and put truth to parchment for the sake of the people of God. Who is he? He identifies himself simply as James, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The simple identification that he gives us suggests that those who read his letter would actually know which James this was. There were several Jameses in the New Testament. These recipients likely had known James personally, most likely had sat under his pastoral ministry in Jerusalem, but they are not in Jerusalem. Notice that he says to the, as we read earlier, 
to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He, he first identifies himself as a slave. Now, if you're using a translation other than the Holman, Christian Standard, your version will say servant or bondservant. But as James wrote in the Greek language, that word slave there is the word doulos, and it means far more than servant. It means slave. So you, you may say, well, Brother Dave, why do they tamper with the term? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> because most English translations come from America or Great Britain. Both countries have an unsavory history with slavery. And so there is an automatic mental block to a translator for using the term slave because slave brings up a very unsanitary concept of unjust oppression that was ended in England through parliamentary rule and in this country by civil war. And so translators actually avoid the term, probably for those reasons. But let me parse this a little better, and I apologize for the formatting. Uh, sometimes when this goes from me to uh, Brother Keith, it doesn't keep its format well, but you'll get the point. You see, in our thinking, a servant is one who serves another, but a slave is the property of another. A servant has some freedom of choice in a matter, but a slave has no choices. A servant may exercise his own will to some degree in order to get tasks done, but a slave is one whose will is completely abandoned to the will of the master. And brothers and sisters, that is what doulos means. We are the property of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have choices only in as much as his choices rule us. And our will is to be abandoned into the will of our master. So James calls himself a slave. To say that is to say he has no rights of his own. He has a, a will that's been permanently consumed in the will of the master. Now the confession for you this morning. They say confession's good for the soul, but it's really bad for the reputation. As I prepared this message, I had this incredible conviction you see, I'm a lousy slave. I'm a much better prime minister. Oh, I know I'm not the king. Jesus is king. But isn't it great that he has me or you? <laughs> you see, we, we tend to, and I'm going to say we now because I, I hope that you're going to join in the misery here. Misery does love company. But we as human beings, and especially as Americans, who are fiercely independent, we have a really hard time seeing ourselves as slaves. We're much better prime ministers in that we're, we're with the king, but we can make policy, we can make decisions, and the king will bless those, right? Well, I don't know about you, but I have a lot to learn about submission to Christ as a slave. Will you join me as I dig deeper? This is yes. Okay, great. <laughs> Glad you're with me. James is not just any slave. 
He's a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. To say this is to elevate this relationship of slavery as the very defining point of his existence. And remember, a slave has no identity other than his master's. James refers to himself simply as a slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. May I ask you, how is it with you this morning? In the context that God has placed you in the world, are you known first and foremost as a slave of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? Let me ask that question a different way. If we were to ask the people who work with you, what is the one defining point of your life? What would their answer be? be. You see, brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are slaves. Slaves have no identity other than the identity of their master. And speaking of the master, notice how James refers to Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we say that all the time, don't we? But why is that so significant? Because this James is the same James that lived in the same house that Jesus grew up in. He was the next son in chronology under Jesus. He was the first son of Mary and Joseph. Remember, Jesus was conceived of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is the oldest child, Mary's son, but James is the first son of Joseph and Mary. Now think about that for just a second. James has 24-7 privileges of observing the God-man. You mothers and fathers of two-year-olds, can you imagine having a perfect two-year-old in your house? Now, all of us remember having two-year-olds who are parents, don't we? Can you imagine Mary's temptation to say, James, can't you just be like your older brother? <laughs> this is the home he grew up in. Growing up, he simply called him Jesus. All his life, he did not believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Even in John 7, when his family comes and they think Jesus has kind of lost his mind, you get the impression from the text, although it does not directly say it, but you get the impression from the text that they are not believing. It wasn't until the crucifixion and the resurrection that there's indication that something changed in James's life. Notice that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, it says that he appeared to James. There's something very special to the Lord Jesus about his relationship with his next brother. And he makes a special resurrection appearance to him. In Acts 1.14, when we see the disciples gathered, it says all these were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his Brothers, Something had happened in the hearts of his earthly family as a result of the resurrection. The resurrection from the dead is what convinced James that this one with whom he had grown up and with whom he had played with as a boy had been tended by when his parents were busy and, and no doubt had argued with and critically evaluated was exactly who he claimed to be. The only begotten Son of God. Crucified, risen from the dead, 
and as glorious is the glorious Lord of heaven and earth. And that is why it's significant that he calls him, he calls, he refers to his half-brother as the Lord Jesus Christ. For some of us this morning in this room, there may be a similar familiarity. We've heard of Jesus all our lives. And that familiarity may even produce a distance between what we know about him and how we live in light of his lordship. We need a fresh view of him this morning. As I was studying, I was reminded of one of my favorite hymn writers, Isaac Watts, who captures this divine chain of events so beautifully as God takes us from lostness into intimate fellowship with himself. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. That is the divine process. And when we see Jesus for who he is, the exalted Lord of heaven and earth, then we will see ourselves as we are, as slaves. And what is a slave? Read this with me. One completely indebted to his master. One completely dependent upon his master. And one whose will is completely engulfed in the will of his master. John MacArthur said these words, true Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life. Instead, it is about devoting myself completely to him, submitting wholly to his will and seeking to please him above all else. It demands dying to self and following the master no matter what the cost. In other words, to be a Christian is to be a slave. So what does a person do who has found that his only significance in life is in being identified with Jesus. Well, he does the will of God. Now, for James, that means that he had a purpose in writing this letter. He says it's to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That term 12 tribes tells you clearly that these are Jewish people. They've been scattered. Dispersion means they've been dispersed. They're scattered for some reason. Acts 8 tells us that there was a great persecution that arose in Jerusalem. And, they, and the Christians were scattered because of it. Some of us have experienced some amount of persecution in the world. Some of us haven't. I promise you that as our country continues to lose its moral base, we all will experience persecution. But if you have, then you understand that persecution can actually whittle away at your faith. You can, the confidence that you have in Christ after continual barrages begins to sort of dissipate. You may actually lose your perspective on who you are in Christ and who God is. And that you can start to conclude by this continual abrasion against you, you can start to conclude that life is nothing more than a series of random acts of painful adversity. Some of us have been there. And then unbiblical and renegade thoughts begin to creep in and to overshadow rational thinking that, and you may feel like my life is nothing more than a cruel joke by a God who's distant. And few of us would admit it, but our emotions would scream at us that God really isn't concerned. Or he would do something. Because only he can. 
to people in this state of adversity and its emotional and spiritual and physical effects, James takes pen in hand and acts like an obedient slave to do what God has called him to do. Because slaves who are devoted to their master are also devoted to other slaves. James, out of concern for his fellow slaves and clearly being led by the master, did something that no one up to that point had ever done. And that is right to his fellow believers. <laughs> James is the first epistle to be written. Nothing existed in writing. No instruction to the new church. No encouragement to suffering believers. No guidance for those in need of direction. Some of us would wait to be told. Not James. James had a burning in his heart because he was a slave of God and the master was urging him to do something and so he did not wait to be told he did not withdraw in passivity while other slaves are being persecuted he is one deeply concerned for the genuine resident faith of God's people which is why he is going to in the next few verses write about trials and adversity and what God is doing through those things but he steps up to the plate and he steps out in faith and he does what no one else has ever done up to this point and he blazes a new trail for Christ now, none of us is writing scripture. <laughs> At least I hope you're not. I hope you don't think you are. But what I do hope is that you have now connected your life as a fellow slave to something that you see in James because there are times, and especially in a period when the church is without a pastor and you're, you're, you're within, and, and I'm not here all the time, I'm just part-time, but you've, you are the body of Christ and there are times that the master, the head of the church will say to you, this is a need, you should go and do that need simply because you're a slave and you're responding to the will of the master. Because slaves do the master's will. And there's something else here that I want to bring to you this morning that is so incredible. Because James, if you've ever read this book, and by the way, how many of you read this book before? Let me see your hands. Yeah, most of us. That's good. Well, there's something about James. He is uniquely used. And I mean by, by that, I mean that God made him a certain way and he's being used in the same way that God made him. What do I mean? Well, James is outgoing. And he's direct. You know, we Southerners, we like to beat around the bush just a little bit. We would never come right out and say that something is wrong. We're, we're polite people. You all are polite. I'm actually lived in the Northeast too long. So I'm no longer officially Southern. <clears throat> but you know what I'm talking about, don't you? But James apparently wasn't from the Southeast United States. Because he said things like, you sinners, you adulterers. I mean, he is, a, he is an abrasive, forthright, direct, cut-to-the-chase kind of guy. <laughs> He's even slightly ADD as he writes. I mean, seriously, have you read the book? He goes from one subject to another. And you're like, whoa, what did you just do, James? But let me tell you something. This is a book that is inspired by the Spirit of God. And, and so my point here is that God used James just the way he was to communicate to us exactly what God intended him to write and the way God intended for him to write it. Now some of us need to just come to Jesus right now. <laughs> I mean seriously. You, you have the worst view of yourselves that you could possibly have. You think God could never use you for whatever reason and you could fill in the blank a hundred times and bore us to tears for hours. 
You think, some of you, and I don't know you that well, but I've been around people a long time. Some of you think that your vocation is less than significant. Therefore, God can't use you. Some of you think that you, you may have a limited education or vocabulary, and therefore God can't use you. Perhaps you have no ability to speak another language. Maybe you don't like to talk at all. You're just quiet and reserved and shy. And for sure, some of us, our personal history is riddled with spiritual failures. And by the way, whose isn't? And, and some of us just can't get our minds around God ever using us. But nothing could be further from the truth. And let me remind you, precious people of God, that none of us, none of Jesus' disciples, were ever chosen because of their abilities or their perfect lives. He called them and they came. In fact, it's safe to say that their abilities in history had nothing to do with their calling. It's obedience to his call that matters. Not what you are or where you've come from, but what the master will make of you as a submitted slave. Truth is, none of us is special. Can I get an amen? We're all lowly. We're all undeserving. We're all damaged goods. And yet, if you're in Christ, you've been redeemed and made new in him. Somebody ought to say amen to that. Every one of us has a painfully long and disgusting list of failures. And the enemy wants you to just focus on that long list and enumerate it one by one so that you stay defeated. But I want to remind you that you serve a God as his slave who is a God of tender mercies. An incredible kindness toward people that he calls to himself. He has never been surprised by anything about you and me. He knew it in eternity past. And then the Bible tells us that he, knowing that, set his divine love upon us. He, and he alone, can take the failure. This is, this is a truth that comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He takes the failure and the dysfunction of the past. And he transforms our hearts. And he takes those things and he creates a platform of effective ministry in the lives of other people. If you are surrendered as a slave to his will. And brothers and sisters, if he's done that kind of work in us, then we have the distinct privilege of giving him back everything that we are. We're nothing. You remember the little boy and his little lunch? You know, Andrew, uh, the disciples are all confused about how Jesus is going to feed all these people. And Andrew goes, ah, it's not much, but it's all we can find. And Jesus just keeps multiplying and keeps multiplying and keeps multiplying. And then there's even some left over that they have to collect. Listen, that's a picture of what God will do to a surrendered servant. And only he can do anything with the likes of us. I've met some real life slaves of Jesus Christ in the last couple of years. It's during my time in West Africa. And I want to share that with you this morning. This is Jean. Jean is from Burkina Faso. He's a man of God. 
and I met him two years ago. John is the father of nine children. He is a farmer. He ekes out a living to feed his family, and yet he's also a pastor of a congregation who doesn't pay him, by the way. They don't have the money to pay him. And he ekes out his living as a farmer, and he also is a key leader to take biblical training from where he learned it in Ghana to his home area in Burkina Faso. John is a slave of Jesus Christ and one whom I love dearly as a dear friend. As I was preparing to leave Ghana last summer, I went down to the training center where we do our training, and I, w I was gonna, just going to say goodbye to the brothers before I went to the airport. And I walked in on this meeting. It was an incredibly holy moment because this gathering of pastors in West Africa, they were around these maps of West Africa, and that one on top is, is actually Ghana. And, and, and I heard Brother Benjamin, who is the man right here on the left, who's doing the talking. He, he is the man in charge of training in, in Ghana, and he is a slave of Jesus Christ. And I heard him say these words, we have no one in this city. Who of you will go and bring the word of God to this city? I want to tell you, I wanted to take off my shoes in that moment. That was holy ground. This is Vivian. Vivian I met this past spring as I was in Ghana. She's from Gambia. She's a young believer. She's just come to know the Lord in the last few months. And I asked her, Vivian, why are you here at training? And she said, because I understand that God wants me to invest in the lives of other people. And I'm new in the faith and I don't know how to do that. Vivian traveled six days on a minivan from Gambia to Ghana in order to get training. Six days. This is my favorite story. This is Veronica. Veronica sat in our classes for two years, and honestly, I, when I looked at Veronica and when I heard her uh, con contributions to the classes, my human reaction was, here is a very plain woman who I'm glad she's here, but probably nothing significant will come from her life. Again, another confession. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry you called me as your pastor, right? You're sorry, too? <laughs> Just <laughs> This is what I was thinking. When training was over, Veronica lives in northern Ghana, in the grasslands of northern Ghana. She had understood... For 16 weeks, she had heard the Great Commission expounded. She had heard 2 Timothy 2.2, that the things you've heard from me, these entrust to faithful men, and that means women too, who will then give it to others. She simply believed what God said. She has nothing, no resources, very little education, very little ability. But Veronica went home after training and realize that there's a neighboring village that doesn't have any teaching from the Word of God. And so she traveled there by foot. And she asked to meet with the chief, because that's what Africans do. The chief, the elders, are still very, very much involved in what happens in the villages. She met with the chief, who was also the town drunk. And she asked permission to come on Saturdays and teach the Word of God to children. He gave her permission and she began to do that. 
Apparently, over time, some parents began to listen. Because in short order, there were 40 new disciples who needed to be baptized and a church begun. One of which was the chief, the town drunk. These are modern day slaves of Jesus Christ. I know there are probably some in this room. We're all growing. We're all maturing. But let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how about us? Think of all the resources God has placed in our hands. He has called us with the same calling that James speaks of to be slaves. And the question is not are we, but what kind of slaves are we? I remind you that it's much easier to give orders than it is to take them. <laughs> but as God's children, we are all under his orders. And he who loved us with an everlasting love has also called us to express that love to others. He has the right to make demands on our life. And we as a result have the privilege of giving him back everything that we are. And everything that we know he will make us to be. Would you bow your heads with me? As we continue to reflect on these truths. And go to a spirit of prayerfulness this morning, right now. I want to ask you to be honest with God. I never want to embarrass anybody, but I am going to ask you something. If you've understood this morning for the first time that you are not truly a Christian, you thought you were, but if a Christian is a slave completely abandoned to the will of his master, you must not be a Christian. If that's you this morning and you want to be a Christian, I'd like you just to raise your hand right now. Is there anybody in the room like that? Everybody's bowed. Everybody's eyes are closed. But I'd like you to express that to me. So your call from Jesus is to raise the white flag and surrender your whole being to him. That your life would bring honor and glory now and forever. Christians, perhaps you need to renew your dedication to your master because it has lost its focus and its effectiveness. You have not seen yourself as someone who should be abandoned to the will of the Master. In these quiet moments, cry out to your loving Master. Father, we come to you needy. And we ask you to create in us the kind of heart that as we go into the world would communicate to the world that we belong to you. Too, too long the church has hidden behind walls and we've done our thing in secret and the world has no idea of who you are. But Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are tenaciously focused on surrender. And that we would live our lives in such a way as to communicate that we are not our own. We are bought with a price and we belong to you, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in that name, your name, Lord Jesus, the name that is above every name. Amen.